danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 370 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owens Mills, Maryland. I am Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, this is Carlos Welch. You're back in Las Vegas. Yeah, um, I was planning to stay in Laughlin longer um, because they were giving me a bunch of comped rooms. I would, they would comp me a week and then I would pay for a week and then they would comp me a week. But then I dug so uh, did a little bit of digging and I saw that the Rio would give me comp rooms during the weeks so where the where Laughlin wasn't uh, Harris at Laughlin, so basically uh, one week comped at Harris and Laughlin, one week comped at the Rio and uh, Vegas, and basically bouncing back and forth between the two for probably the next two months. Nice sick life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Better than I could have uh, expected, for sure. This got to run out at some point. I don't know how this comp shit works, but <laughs> at some point, like I'll keep checking, but eventually it's got to run out. Yeah, it's not clear to me what the um, the the Rio's incentive is. I mean, I guess they're not really using the rooms for much anyway, but it's not like you're gambling there, and you know, like they're they're not really making any money off of having you stay there. Yeah, the money they make for me is um, uh, when I play on WSOP.com, which um, I can't do from Laughlin um, because it's too close to the Arizona border. Oh, and, and it won't. <laughs> yeah, the GeoTracker thing like messes it up. Exactly. So if I want to play on WSOP.com, I have to um, be in Vegas and... Um, um, so I'll get a room here at the Rio um, for that. So they make that money off of me, but yeah, um, not too much. Uh, not the pit games and stuff. Nice. Well, enjoy while it lasts. Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping so. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping it lasts forever. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, our guest today, Conrad Simpson. Um, I met him very briefly. I, I guess you know, pe- people who will recognize him will, will know him from Self for Why. I know he uh, deals often for their um, their Poker Out Loud. Has he has he actually been on there as a um, as a player as well on Poker Out Loud? Not that I know of. Um, I don't think so. Uh, I've seen him on there several times dealing, but never playing. So I, I met him briefly at a solve for why thing that that I was at a couple of years ago, and um, we didn't really talk that much. But I just kind of got the the vibe from talking to him of like, this is an interesting guy who's, who's got an interesting story, and uh, that was a good read on my part. <laughs> an extremely interesting story, and uh, an extremely interesting guy to talk to. Yeah, uh, what's funny is I'm actually in the process of going back and rewatching the footage from the um, um, academy that you did. Uh, so the first thing I noticed is that uh, Conrad didn't have hair back then, which is um, hilarious when we know uh, the Conrad image now. And second is, yeah, he's just like 
such this big personality, but when you see him on film, he just somehow holds it all in. We know he wants to be the life life of the party at all times, but he does a pretty good job of holding it in when he has to. Which is one of the things we talked to him about was uh, as a dealer, especially a dealer in a private game, needing to strike that balance of uh, in order to get tips and, and sort of be liked by the players. It's useful to have some kind of personality. But at the same time, uh, you know, players really don't want a dealer whose personality is like interfering with the game. So being able to be likable without crossing that line, I think, is a pretty critical dealer skill in terms of um, getting getting tokes and getting invited back to keep dealing. Right, right. Uh, so very exciting interview with Conrad coming up. Hope that you all will enjoy that. Uh, first, of course, we have a strategy segment for you. And even before that, we have to remind you that if you enjoy the strategy segments on this show, you can get so many more of them at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. You could be getting strategy segments from us every day, hearing high-quality strategy like what you're about to hear. So please do sign up at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. It's a great way to get access to uh, more strategy from us and also help support the show. So this question is coming to us from JD. Played this hand in a 2-5 cash game. Uh, it's eight-handed. JD is a straddle on the button. So this is really like a 2-5 with a 10 on the button straddle. Uh, JD has king eight of clubs. Um, everyone flats. And then uh, the awesome whale in the cutoff makes it, uh, he says, only 50, which I guess if a bunch of people have already limped for 10 is not such a large race. Uh, so it makes it only 50. Doesn't seem strong at all. Uh, he likes to go much bigger with any pair. And now our hero has a choice. Uh, so king eight suit on the button. Hero already has $10 posted. A bunch of people have limped. There's a whale raising to 50, which he's reading is not terribly strong. He is king eight suited. We're $700 effective. Uh, I can see how all three choices might be on the table. What do you think here? Um, yeah, I agree with that. Um, probably, uh, I'd like to know more about this, um, the player in the cutoff. When we say he's not, um, uh, strong here, does that mean we think he's going to fold to a three bet or call the three bet with bad hands? Uh, that's, I need that information to make a decision here. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helps. I feel like at some point his range is wide enough that, like, as long as I mean, so the really bad outcome is if he four bets, right? Like that's that's the the by far the worst case scenario. Right. Um, of course, we love it if he folds. If if we can three bet and make all those limpers fold and just get it heads up with a cutoff, and we know that he's not starting with a very strong hand, at some point, even if he's calling with a wide range, like. You know, we still we're going to be in position. The wider his calling range, the better our equity is. I mean, the nice thing about King Eight suited is, it's um it's doing well against a wide range. Like it's it's in bad shape against the top like five percent of hands or something. But if we can if we can say he probably doesn't have a top five percent hand, then it's not the end of the world. You know, if he calls with a Queen Jack off suit, or I mean, I guess some of the King X is, is bad for us. He might call with like nine eight suited or something that they were that were dominating. So I think if we don't expect to get four bet too often, um, I, I certainly have a preference for whether he calls or folds. But I feel like a small three bet here, just with so much dead money in the pot, um, it seems pretty reasonable to me as long as we don't think that he's going to four bet very often. Yeah, and looking at it now, actually, this hand probably works better than some more, uh, some more of the uh, the more natural um, three bets, something like an ace five suited, for the exact reason you said, where having the eight probably dominates more of his calling range. 
and um, if we, um, yeah, so like have like so we're gonna lower the SPR by three betting here. So it's kind of better to have a big card and a medium card than a big card and a small card, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're both viable options. I, I think part of the point that I want to make here, uh, and directing this at, at the audience, not at you, but um, I think that a lot of people, like, so in these very loose games where there's, like, lots of limping and lots of people putting money in the pot with, with bad hands, some people's response to that is to, like, to play extremely tight, right? I mean, I think this is, like, bad information that goes around on, on poker forums of, well, if everyone else is loose, you should play tight. Uh, you shouldn't really be trying to get like pure bluffs through very much. So, like three betting here would do seven offsuit, probably a bad idea. Um, right. But you can be be um, you, and you want to be more aggressive with sort of a thin value or what we might call linear range. So when you're three betting here, there's not even the expectation that you're going to make the original razor fold. But uh, you know, an eight-handed table where. We've already had, uh, you know, there's four people who have limped in there for 10. Your straddle's already in the pot. There's the small one and the big one. I mean, there's close to, there's about $100 in this pot when the action's on you. And if you call, probably you're going to get, you know, a bunch of those limpers are going to call, and they're all going to get to realize equity. So I know some people will look at this and they'll think, well, king eight suited, like, that's an okay hand for a multi-way pot. Like, uh, some, I think some people even have the misunderstanding that they want this to be a multi-way pot. Um, which just because your hand holds its equity okay multi-way, like you're still much more likely to win a heads-up pot. So when we talk about fold equity in multi-way pots, it's not necessarily about taking the pot down. But what we can do by three betting is you push out all these other people who presumably have pretty weak ranges with with their limps. You push all of them out. You get it heads up against this player who also doesn't have a super strong range. And this is a very gambly thing to do, which I think is why some people don't like it. You know, these games where they're very splashy and people are putting a lot of money in the pot with with bad hands the most plus ev thing for you to do is for you to also get in there and gamble and, and you don't need a huge edge to do it so i'm not claiming this is like a super profitable thing to do there's a lot of variance associated with it which i understand some people don't like but in terms of like how to make the most money from the game you want to be looking for opportunities like this where you can get a lot of fold equity and still have a fighting chance in a heads up pot you know isolating essentially Right. Makes sense. Uh, and our hero goes for it, to, to his credit. Um, he makes it 130 with, uh, I, I said uh, the, the effective stacks were 700, but actually 700 is the effective stack after he makes it 130, which I think makes this even better. You know, the, the deeper we are, the more valuable your position is going to be. Uh, so he makes it 130, everyone folds, and the cutoff calls, uh, which JD says he expects the cutoff will do almost always. Oh, there it goes. <laughs> See, sometimes I ask for, I, I just need to read ahead, just need to read ahead. <laughs> Um, with a stack to pot ratio of just over two, he says, I plan to get all the money in with almost any pair, almost any draw. Uh, pot 310 or so with 700 behind. The flop is queen six deuce, two spades and a heart. Our hero has king eight of clubs, so he didn't get the pair, he didn't get the draw. Villain donks for 200. Um, our hero at this point considers this an easy fold. I'm inclined to agree. Yes. I thought, I thought he was going to do something. I was like, wait, there's more to this? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, this is an easy poll. Yeah, so his question was, um, what range are you isolating with, and how does the large ace-high portion of my range deal with donk bets? Um, I think w what he means by that is, like, he's going to have a lot of hands on this board that, that have no pair or no draw. And that's a good thing to be aware of. I mean, I think... the 
there, there's two ways of approaching this. Like when, when the villain is dunking for 200, I think the exploitative way is just to say um, this player, I don't know if this is true, but it would often be my assumption against a whale that like his bet is meaningful. The fact that he's dunking for 200 here indicates that he has a hand that he likes. And I'm just sort of going to make my decision based on that. I'm not going to worry that I might be getting exploited by bluffs because I'm going to assume this is not a bluff. I'm going to assume that this is kind of a straightforward. He likes his hand. And so if I have a hand that has good equity against hands that he likes, <laughs> I'll continue. And if I don't, then I'll fold. So when you have, I mean, it's true that you'll have a lot of like King eight of clubs, as you said, a five of clubs you'll have a lot of those hands that are folding and i think that's okay if you feel comfortable making the assumption that this bet is not a bluff if you're concerned that he might just be firing here with anything there is a kind of game theoretical approach to this as well which is you can assess the pot odds that you're getting and think about your own range and think about trying to continue at a frequency that would make bluffing not profitable for this player so he's risking 200 to win 300. Uh, so you don't want to let him succeed at that more than um, 40%. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you don't want to let him succeed more than 40% of the time. So that means you need to kind of think about your own range. You don't have to do this perfectly, but you need to recognize like you should be continuing here about 60% of the time. You're not going to have a pair 60% of the time. You're not going to have a... Um, a good draw 60% of the time. So you do want to think about some of your better unpaired hands to continue with. You know, I think ace jack is going to be better than ace five when we're making that kind of decision. Um, I think also that like having a backdoor uh, flush draw, you want to look for, for stuff like that. Um, you might even sometimes choose, <clears throat> choose to have some just pure bluffs where you like make a tiny, I mean, you don't have a lot of room to do this, but you know, the other way of responding here, if, if you choose to respond with hands that have truly no equity would be to make a small raise. But mostly I would think in terms of calling or folding um, in this spot and just you know, trying to conceptualize what would the best 60% of my range look like. And um, yeah, that, I mean, that's it, it, some of those are like not super high value calls, but and and they're not going to be high value at all if he's never bluffing. Um, so I mean, that that's part of it is like, do you are are you concerned about getting exploited by bluffs here in the first place, or do you feel comfortable just making the assumption that this guy is is you know serious about his hand once he bets? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Uh, other question from JD is, um, if we're more shallow than this, then isolating starts to become less appealing. Uh, he says without an extremely tight range. I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, I think that again, like you, you can't you like you know ace ten or something might be good enough to to go with. So it's not that you need a, a great hand. I do agree that you know your position is going to be worth less as you get shallower. So. Um, you the, the fact that we're going to be in position even with a stacked pot ratio too is a lot better than just getting an all-in pre-flop or something so the fact that you're going to be in position does enable you to have a slightly wider range hands like king eight suited that are um they're suited <laughs> they have additional value <laughs> when you're deeper so maybe i'd be more inclined to do this with like uh i mean i think king jack off suits a fine hand to do it with anyway but the shallower you get the more inclined i'm going to be to do this with like king jack off suit ace nine off suit rather than king eight suited so i don't know that it necessarily means you have to do it a lot less often, maybe a little less often, but the the kinds of hands that you might choose to do it with um, would be different. And the same thing would be true if we were much deeper. Um, you would have more room to make a play like this, and you'd be a little more interested in doing it with uh, like a you know, seven six suited, or you know you wouldn't care quite as much about the size of your cards. And um, having the ability to flop straight and flush draws would become more valuable to you. Now he does bring up a pretty good point about 
more shallow stacks. Like I would imagine that at some point, at some point, the stack would get shallow enough to where we could probably just do a decent amount of um, jamming pre. Uh, what stack size uh, would you be comfortable doing that? Like the biggest stack you would be willing to jam here, fairly light. Yeah, say, a- something like Ace. What? Let's say like Ace Ten suited. Um, I, so I'd probably be jamming lighter than that, <laughs> um, but I think that it's kind of a function of at what point do you not have room to three bet and fold to a four bet? So you know this villain is opening to fifty. Uh, our hero's three bet was to like one thirty. So I feel like you could, if you had around four hundred and fifty dollars or so, I guess that would be about the point where I think that you might still have room to raise to one thirty and and fold to a shove. So if I were much shallower than 450 you know maybe 400 dollars or less is, is around the point where i would just shove rather than be looking for um to have like a smaller three betting range uh, and of course the bigger we're shoving the better hand we're going to need because we're risking more to win the same amount of money in the pot um but yeah i mean i feel like if we had say 200 dollars here and there's already 100 in the pot and we think no one has an especially good hand uh, i don't feel like we need something like i feel like most suited aces but maybe even all suited aces would be good enough to shut like if, if we only had 200 dollars here with so much um pretty weak money already in the pot i think we could probably shove quite wide and be profitable yeah that's kind of how i view these spots like the rough math that i use that probably isn't based in any kind of fact but it's something i've heard over the years is um if you can pick up roughly 20 percent of your stack um it's a spot where you can um um, go pretty wide and so i'll do that with reasonable bluffs like you said um suited aces um even some like like king nine suited those type of hands but if i'm going to be going much bigger than that like you said i want a stronger range and basically if my stack is uh, if maybe if I can only pick up like maybe 10 or 15% of what's in the middle, if I choose to shove in that spot, I'm going to like remove the bottom of that range and just go with the hands that I think are best, but vulnerable, like thinking more so about the, um, small pairs and, mm-hmm. um, and some of the, um, um, weaker, uh, offsuit hands I might want to jam there. Yeah. I, I think in that spot, once the pot gets to be only like 10 or 15% of your stack, you might still have a shoving range, like you're saying, with, with some of those hands that have pretty decent all-in preflop equity. They're kind of tough to play after the flop. Um, but you might also start to have a calling range. And, and I mean, I guess you could still have a calling range at like $400. But you know, you, there would be more hands you'd be calling with if you're, not, if you're not doing as much shoving. Some of those hands would turn into calls. Some of them might turn into small three bets as well. Um, I mean, that's kind of the situation we're, we're looking at. Here, I think the, uh, the the pot is somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen percent of the hero's stack. Um, so you know there, there's room for him to have a small three betting range. That doesn't mean that there's no hand that you can shove here. I yeah. think there's probably some you know pocket threes or something like play pretty well as a shove. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I kind of view like like this is a spot where I would definitely jam if I had like a medium pair, but um, I don't think enough about. Um, three betting hands like this in those sort of spots i kind of like save these hands for spots where the stacks are more shallow when in reality as jd has shown here i could i could do both Mm -hmm. i I think that the big takeaway is that when you've got people who are playing too loose um fold, fold equity 
really becomes your friend and you don't need great hands for it. And it might seem sort of weird to say that of like, well, what do you mean fold equity? Like in a, in a loose game, why are we talking about fold equity? Uh, I mean, you do get fold. Like, I don't think it's the, I mean, I know some games are this loose. It doesn't sound like this is one of them where these people are limping and then cold calling a three bet. Yeah, like that it, yeah. So essentially what's happening is you can almost treat that money as like dead money or undefended money. It's, it's money that's in the pot that doesn't actually have strong hands behind it. And you want to try to capture that money and you can think of that money as a subsidy. So even if you're you're likely to take your hand to showdown, either because you're shoving or because you're three betting and leaving yourself a small stack to pot ratio where you're, you're going to be going to showdown fairly often with some hands that aren't great. The reason you can afford to do that or why that's profitable is you're getting subsidized by all these people who are putting money in the pot that they can't defend. And the way you take advantage of that is by pushing them off of those weak hands. Of course, if you can take the pot down, that's great. But the point is you don't have to even pushing them out and then only having to beat one player even if there's a lot of luck involved and when you you just sort of end up flipping a coin about whether or not you beat that player that coin flip is getting subsidized by all that dead money i think this is the thing that a lot of people uh, miss in these in these games and i'm not sure if it's you know not understanding the theory or just not really wanting to gamble but um what people's approach to these games is just like oh i'm just gonna call and try to make hands and it's true that you can get paid off pretty big if you make the hands but i think that's not often the most profitable because you just sort of you lose a lot of 50 dollar pots you know calling with king eight suited and yeah. then uh, whiffing it where I mean even this is a flop that the hero might have won right I mean even though he flopped nothing if the villain had checked I think there's a fair chance our hero can just make a, a tiny you know tiny sea bet like a 75 100 dollars into a 300 dollar pot and have you know a fair chance maybe a 40 or 50 percent chance of taking the pot down I mean the, the, the villain's going to be in the same sh- spot as the hero where he has a lot of no pair no draw hands on this board I think there's a fair chance you can take those away from him even if you also have missed yeah yeah, especially with the gap range. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thanks very much for writing, JD. Interesting question. I'm sure it's a spot that a lot of our listeners have confronted. Uh, uh, folks, you also have the opportunity to hear your hands discussed by Carlos and myself. And the best way to do that is by signing up patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Please enjoy our conversation with Conrad Simpson. Um, Are you a professional poker player yet? Yes, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you can put me down, professional poker player. Okay, good. Yeah, let's let's just start with that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. So what's what's the uh, what's the story though? What, what's the I think so part? Oh um, no, it's definitely a professional poker player. I just need to get my life together and put my schedule together. <laughs> <laughs> I you like I use the term so like loosely. It's like professional, yeah. Let me tell you how professional. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like that is kind of the appeal of. Um of poker for a lot of people right i mean that it is uh i mean obviously like at, at the highest levels people are, are taking it more seriously but i mean it is a venue for people who for a variety of reasons are like not well suited to um getting jobs elsewhere or, you know jobs elsewhere are not super appealing to them like i think the idea that you don't have to be a professional to, to make money from poker is a big part of the appeal for many people myself probably included yeah what a facade that is because that's just complete bullshit 
<laughs> like you know, you have to have your, you you have to be professional to make money in this game, and it's just like it's 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 such a lie to the beginning eye that like hey, you can play poker. Oh yeah, play a few hours a day, you know, whatever, and make money from it because it's just not like that. Life is, you know, poker's a little bit harder than that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you have to work at it. You have to take it seriously. Uh, you don't have to wear a suit and tie. Um, you don't necessarily have to do a lot of like networking or ass guessing. Although those things can help. Like I think that the the role of those things probably is underappreciated in in poker. But I still think there's a lot less of it than uh, if you were in like the corporate world or something. No, absolutely. People ask us for knowledge here, though. Right. <laughs> my my hesitation is always uh, like in my mind once I declare that I'm a professional poker player that's where I derive the majority of my income and that I don't I don't I don't I don't think I ever want to be in that position where I have to play for my income uh, for a while I, I call myself a sim a semi-pro um, because I've always had other sources of income outside of poker but just having to grind every day to pay the bills uh, that that isn't appealing to me, so that's my hesitation with the term professional poker player. No, absolutely, because like when you're grinding every day to pay the bills, you're more like a hamster wheel player. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Just, which is what we try to avoid. You know, that's the reason to get into poker, so that you don't have to be on the hamster wheel. It's so funny though, because like the entry level to poker is the hamster wheel, and it's almost impossible to get off. Yeah, that's like, true. It, it's it's not just like hey you can get off here and start your career no it's just like it's a long grind i mean a lot of kids um expedite that nowadays with extra study and all that stuff and just being better at and life staking as well like i think that's um a, a big thing that's because i mean it is hard to run up a bankroll like especially since the the rake is so high at smaller stakes like mm -hmm. it is kind of difficult to just you know start off playing uh one two or something and then run up a bankroll that enables you to to move up to play like five ten or something yeah absolutely uh so where does your um your your poker story start my my poker story starts um i think my poker story starts when i was 19 i met oscar gerardo which is actually the star to, to be determined the documentary that we have on software i came out with mm -hmm. and we started playing five and ten dollar tournaments, you know, unlimited rebuys, so I can buy in a hundred times. And you know, it was it was a great learning experience. Oscar got rich. I lost all the money. <laughs> my, my weekly paycheck went to Oscar every week, and um, that was my beginning of poker. Until I started dealing, running games out of my house, like a one-two, just friends, um, and then eventually started dealing games. I got a call one night to go deal a 2-5 game. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was like, sure, why not? Went there, dealt for like 7 hours, 10 in the morning. I got paid for like between five and $700, I want to say. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> what was I doing before this? I don't remember. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter anymore. Let me tell you that much. <laughs> um, so I eventually started dealing all games in town, like um, North New Jersey and... Some games in the city, um, and yeah, I never took poker seriously though. Like as from a poker aspect, I was always a gambler. Definitely coming from a gambler's lens, and since I was dealing all these games, making an absurd amount of money when I was like nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, um, 
it was it was quick. Everything was quick, so it didn't matter what I did with the money because the money always came back. So how'd you learn? How did you learn to deal? How did I learn to deal? I got when I got that call that day. <laughs> that was your first time. I didn't know how to deal really. I might have jumped <laughs> in the box in my house once or twice, but I was like, all right, whatever. Let me get in there. And <laughs> they needed dealers, and over time, I was there. I was just available, so I got better and better at it. Was that something that you had to like actively practice? I mean, like kind of how you handled the deck and being careful not to to flash cards and stuff. I mean, did you just sort of get better by doing it, or were you uh, you watching I, YouTube videos or anything? There were so many games every single night of the week that I immediately got into dealing that I didn't have time to do anything else. Mm-hmm. I literally just kept dealing every night, and yeah, it was um, it's kind of interesting. I eventually found myself uh, dealing a rotation game. Which this is like one of the saddest stories. It's not sad, but it's like um, today as a poker player, it's eye-opening. Like, holy shit, what the fuck was happening? So basically, I used to deal this game in Hoboken, New Jersey. It was a 5-5 rotation game where um, the game was pretty big. There was always like 40 to 50K on the table. Um, Rotation means playing several different games? It was PLO and Hold'em. Okay. And um, basically, I got 30% of the rake minus the 10% tax. At this time in like house games in like North New Jersey, like people didn't talk about rake. Whatever was taken was taken, and nobody said anything. If somebody did say anything, they went straight to like the house runner, and the house runner would just take care of them and just keep it moving. So I was basically incentivized to rake a lot, and I was not only incentivized; I was told to rake a lot. Like, so there was halves, thirty minutes halves, that I was walking out of the box with like a thousand. In a 5-5 rotation game. So when you say rake a lot, you mean just like grab money out of the pot? Yes, complete thief. 100%, I should have been fucking locked up for this shit. (laughs) They should have fucking locked me up and never let me out of jail ever, ever, ever. It was honestly ridiculous. Like, there was nice. I'm raking like 10, 11, 12,000. This is a 5-5 game. You know? And it's like I was making 30% minus 10% tax. So... It was just a complete crush. And then once I stopped dealing that game, I really stopped dealing because what the fuck's the point of dealing after that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you probably don't make that amount of money in any legitimate dealing situation. In any situation, period. You know, yeah. it just kind of, it just, I, it was absurd. Like, I'm not happy. I, like, today I look back and I was like, wow, like, that's, that was really bad. But like it, during the time, it was just life. Can can I ask you a little more like the, the logistics of those? So you know, he used the term house runner, which I mean, I can kind of imagine what that is. But like, how were these games uh, set up? You know, like who was um, did this sort of like how how did they run? All right. So basically, for this game specifically, there's this guy named Mungi, and um, he didn't even have any players. It was so great. He's an absolute genius. All he did was meet one person that said he has a couple players. And he was like, all right, he found a couple friends. While one guy brought this, one of my friends brought like maybe, I don't know, a rotation of 10 to 15 people to the game. The guy, the game runner, Monkey, would only bring like three or four, but he would just cover all costs of the game. So like if there was sheet, if there was anything, it was just always covered. So basically, he would use other people's players and make a million dollars a year off of it 
<laughs> and he was like providing the venue though. They were playing at his. Oh yeah, uh, sorry, providing the venue. Yeah, providing the venue. You know, drinks, food, all that good stuff. So I mean, in his defense, he probably was taking on most of the like legal risk of running the game. <laughs> I laugh because legal risk. Yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> North New Jersey in Hudson County, there is no legal risk. <laughs> I've been, I think we've been raided. I think I've been in a raid like three times. And when I say a raid, in North New Jersey, a raid is when they knock on the door and say, hey, um, you guys shouldn't be playing poker in here. And um, yeah, just have a great day. <laughs> I mean, is, is there there's money changing hands when that knock happens or? Um, well, I mean, you know, you always kind of try to hide the money. Right. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, the, the, is the person knocking on the door, uh, in order to get paid off? No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I meant police, like the raids. Yeah, like, no, oh. I understand that. I'm, I'm saying oh, talk, we're talking to oh, I, get, I get you. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> so funny enough, actually in that game, the one I speak of, it was shut down basically because of something like that, because mm. he wouldn't just, he wouldn't pay tax. Right. to somebody else in Jersey City. And it was literally how that game got shut down. Shots fired outside and everything. <laughs> it was absurd. Uh, and so how did you, like, what What was your, um, I mean, it sounds like a job a lot of people would want. And uh, I mean, you said at least initially you weren't like a particularly skilled dealer in terms of like handling cards. What was your, what were you bringing to the table? Like what, what made you desirable for this position? What makes me desirable for everything? My attitude. That, that was going to be my guess. Yeah. You know, I just, I laugh. I have fun. I talk shit. Like, why wouldn't you want me there? Yeah, I, I get the impression <laughs> that, um, especially for home game dealers, this is really the main thing that, that people are, I mean, I, I'm, obviously you have much more experience with home games than I do. I've, I've avoided them because of the shots fired outside and the oh, no, <laughs> of course. snatching and it's funny uh, unlimited rank out of the pot. But Yeah, of course. It's funny because it's actually a fine line because it's like you really want a dealer not to say anything while he's dealing, but at the same time, you want to see some sma- uh, laughs and smiles and, I don't know, a good atmosphere, so it's kind of a fine line. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that's like a, that's a skill in itself, right, is learning how to you know, not, not be disruptive and make sure that you're keeping the game moving, but also being entertaining enough that people, I mean, I assume you're getting tips on top of the, uh, the rake that you're pulling out of the pot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else to answer that one. <laughs> I will. I will say this though. This is a, a, a really good question because uh, just from watching uh, Conrad deal on Softwire uh, and like you know uh, seeing him in other venues, I know he has this big personality, and so it just I I, I kind of think that it's taking everything inside of him not to like let that personality out in the times where he needs to be quiet in the dealer box. So that seems like a battle. It seems like it would be a battle for you. I bite my cheeks a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that was definitely a battle, I must say. But everybody knew me, so, you know, just is what it is. Okay, so you're you're dealing for a while, and you said that was starting from when you were, like, 19 or so? Uh, About 20. All right, so you're you're dealing for a while, and then what? Um, dealing for a while. Oh, and then tragedy. Tragedy hits. Um, in my life, my mom got sick. Um, was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer again, and I had a little brother that was at the time ten when she got sick, and I was about twenty five. So, 
um, I was kind of thrown into a caretaker role where my little brother was on the number three team in the country for baseball for his age. So we were traveling across the country every weekend for baseball tournaments. And during the week, I was going to chemo and doing stuff for my mom and doctor stuff. So I kind of took off life for two years, which actually is the beyond best thing that ever happened to me in life. Like, um, spending this time in, in this moment was amazing. So it was, um, my life kind of took a turn. I went from doing whatever I want to being a caretaker and, you know, being there for my fam. Mm-hmm. So oh, she eventually passed when I was next year and I was gifted a 11 year old child and a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> And a ridiculous apartment that costs $3,300 a month in Rutherford, New Jersey, that nobody should ever pay $3,300 a month in Rutherford, New Jersey. So um, my life kind of took a turn there. Um, And I kind of spent the next year or two just going through the motions, um, doing things for my little brother and then taking my frustrations out on life kind of through gambling. you know, I would do shit like drop my little brother off at school, head down to parks, which is like an hour and a half drive, come pick him up before the time school's over with, and just like doing stupid stuff and not just whatever. Just doing kind of like it's kind of a release for me, kind of just. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a pretty overwhelming situation. Yeah, it, it is, I handled things wrong. That was just basically how that one went. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I, I had to do something similar last year uh, with my grandmother, uh, who was um, um, she's um, in her mid eighties and um, had to deal with um, a surgery that was like really touch and go for a while there. So I had to drop everything to go and um, sit with her at the hospital for about a month. Um, and I was forty at the time, and it was challenging. So I can imagine having to do this at age twenty five. But doesn't it make you feel so good that you had the freedom that you were able to do that? It like, does. And I, like, and I tell I, people that last year was the best and worst year of my life. Best and worst. It's, it's like insane. Yep. And it's like insane because like so many times in my life, I'm like thinking about, man, I could have just went to go to school, do, do this, do that. I could have done anything I wanted. But I don't think I would be able to take those three years, two years off in my life to do what I did. So when it comes down to it, it's like, I think I made the best decisions in my life. And it's so weird to say <laughs> you, you so, were, you were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Just available for opportunity kind of. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I would never trade anything for those two years that I had, whatever, um, doing what I had to do. So yeah, kind of rough spot though, but eventually, so after that, um, Eventually, uh, my little brother was moving down to North Carolina with my aunt and my uncle to get some structure, and I went down there with him. Um, I lived there for about six months, well, I'm sorry, like two months before I found every game in town. Literally found every poker game in town. They were playing high-low. I've never played the game before. I was like, deal me in. Um, how, How do you find these games? Like, How do you get networked into a new underground poker community? So, (laughs) this one's funny. I was actually just laying in bed looking on Twitter one day, or Twitch, and I somehow come across Drew Gonzalez, bet on Drew. 
and I go to his Twitter, and it says Wilmington, North Carolina. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. So (laughs) (laughs) I DM, and I'm like, yeah, where are the games around here? I just moved here, blah, blah, blah. And he says, um, he points me in the direction of this kid named Juan and Mike. And by 9 o'clock that night, I was playing high-low, a game I never played before. (laughs) So that was a pretty awesome um, introduction to Wilmington Poker. Yeah. How, um, How different were those games from the ones that you knew from New Jersey? Man. Games were... So... Games were better, as in the people, players were worse. Even though, yeah, like, players were worse, but the money wasn't as much. So, basically, in New York, a couple better players there. Like, the average of knowing what's going on is a lot higher than Wilmington, North Carolina. But there was just no money in North Carolina compared Mm -hmm. to New York. Where you know I just have a revolving door and fifty k on the table all the time in five five games, um, so like it was more of like a family game down in North Carolina, <laughs> and like it, it was it was weird kind of. You have like maybe ten kids between the age of twenty and thirty, and then everybody else is just older, you know, retired playing poker every once in a while, every night I should say. <laughs> And with with your history in those games, I mean, knowing knowing what you were doing as a dealer in, in the games that you had dealt in, did you feel like you needed to be you know watching them closely to make sure that you weren't getting uh, stolen from the same way? So, as somebody that's stole so much money from the pots over t- life, I don't think I'm allowed to look and say anything. <laughs> I don't think I can say a damn word. <laughs> All I can do is nod my head like you got me, homie. I can't do shit about this. <laughs> I can't even talk. I can't even say anything. I'm in a different state, and I still can't say anything. It's just like my inner soul won't let me. But uh, <laughs> I mean, if they were stealing more than two months, I can tell you that much for sure. <laughs> so you were you were playing in these games, dealing these games, both. No, I'm both. I started playing in them, of course, until I built up relationships with people. And I was like, hey, you know, I deal. Which didn't take too much longer after mm-hmm. meeting everybody. And um, I kind of just started getting in rotation in every game in town. It was just a, a way to keep me in the game and, and, like, just keep me in North Carolina for the time. I would just deal and play just like I'd, the only thing I knew, kind of. Was that, um, I mean, did that feel like satisfying? Like, okay, this is what I want to be doing? Or was it more, I don't know what else to do with myself? I don't know what else to do with myself at this time. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew there was nothing here for me. Like, there wasn't enough money here, so I can't do anything. Like, it's it's not like, um, I knew it was just basically like a living day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, even if I make it out day-to-day, who knows? <laughs> it's like... It was. I knew that Wilmington, North Carolina, wasn't placed where I could get ahead in life at all. So it was kind of just like going through the motions and thinking about where to get out. And then I fucked up my life for a week. <laughs> 
So I had, had a little run in. My roommates in North Carolina, um, they were into drugs, kind of. And I, they smoked meth every day. I never did this. I lived with them for like a year at this time. And I feel like that counts as more than kind of. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) But let me tell you something. These were very high-functioning people. (laughs) I didn't even understand the shit. So anyway, you were like... He was kind of into drugs. Just smoked that every day. (laughs) Kind of like you were kind of into poker. (laughs) So basically, he was a big in the math, kind of. And I was... I um tried it. I was at a low one day, and I tried it. And we sat there, and we played ACR and smoked meth for a week straight. I turned like $170 into 12000 And then I went to sleep because it was seven days later. When I woke wow. up, I packed all my shit in my fucking Jeep, and I got the fuck out of that house so goddamn quick that it might have took me like, I don't know, an hour max. To get all my shit in my truck and get out of there. And I drove to a family member's house about four hours away. Because I knew was just like you you saw the the danger if you stuck around there. Oh, absolutely. I knew that life wasn't for me. And it's just like I've always like I kind of um protected myself from these types of situations because I didn't want to fall into these traps. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm very, very, very susceptible susceptible to falling into. <laughs> yeah. So I um yeah I woke up I packed all my shit and I mo- uh, drove four hours away to my other aunt's house and I stayed with her for about six months until the tax man gave me five thousand dollars and we found ourselves on a plane going to Las Vegas with no plan no thought no nothing <laughs> just forty eight ninety seven in the bank account <laughs> I literally so. Funniest part about this is I literally left my car in a parking lot in North Carolina the day I left. I woke up one day, saw my bank account, saw that it hit, and I was like, fuck this. I left my car in a parking lot, hopped on a plane, never went back. That was four years ago. Why did you just Las Vegas? Um, I kind of felt like there would just be more opportunity. Like... You know, like, even if I fall short, I can probably figure something out. Mm. Um, but, I mean, it's probably one of the tougher places to deal. Um, I mean, if, if that was, like, the, the fallback plan was, like, deal in private games, I imagine Vegas is one of the tougher places to oh, yeah. do that. I mean, I still haven't gotten to one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work today. If you guys get me to private game, just let me know. Call me. 1-800-CONNIE. Um, <laughs> no, but, um, I, honestly, I was so... I was so out of touch with reality that I didn't have a backup plan. And you know, if I felt, I felt. I didn't care. I mean, I, whatever. It's still my my um, outlook on things to a certain extent nowadays. But it's like I had nothing going for me. So what does it matter? You know? Mm-hmm. It was just like I literally have nothing going for me. I can go figure something out. Um, and, if, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Figure figure out the next plan, but you know, I wasn't gonna not give myself a shot and to get out of where I was. So, what did you do when you got? I mean, so you got off the plane. Where'd you go? Damn, where did I go? All right, I think I got off the plane. I had an Airbnb set up. 
And then I got off the plane and I went to uh, South Point. I'm pretty sure I went to the South Point. And I saw that they had cheap rooms there. It was like 60 bucks a night. So I was like, cool. So I booked one for like a week. And I was playing cash at South Point and Bellagio going back and forth. Doing pretty well, actually. Um, I think I doubled my role within the first week or something like that. But I was also out of my goddamn mind. Playing like a lunatic and ran really fucking good. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I was running around doing a lot of stupid shit and just, you know, um, not... Obviously, I wasn't living life with a plan, so I eventually went broke playing 510 and just silly stuff later on. Um, but right before I went broke, I had hit up Chin, and I was like, what are you doing with your life? And and this is like, Christian Seto. Yes. And I was, he's like, I'm moving to Vegas. I was like, you're doing what? He's like, I'm moving to Vegas. First, I'm going to LA, and then I'm going to Vegas. And I was like, all right, well, um, I'm in Vegas right now, and I have... I don't know what's going on in my life, so hit me up when you get here. <laughs> so hit me up you get back from L.A. And the Academy was, oh, no, it wasn't the Academy. I think they were doing the Heads Up Challenge the next day. So whatever, he told me to come by. And they were also filming um, To Be Determined with my friend Oscar from Jersey. So me and Christian know each other. Me, Christian, and Oscar are friends from Jersey. Um, we came up in the private games together. Uh, Christian's first game was at my house, basically or maybe second came to my house um and yeah we all just end up being good friends from jersey <coughs> so whatever i um i was like yeah so i'm out here and um he's like all right cool come on to the heads up challenge whatever and then i got there hung out for a little bit um told about my situation eventually because i was kind of like in a fucked up spot because I kind of like had $1,000 on me, I think. I think I had 1K on me. And I was just like, what am I going to do with myself? <laughs> so I didn't know anything, honestly. I was just really, um, not that I cared or anything. I was just going through the motions. It just didn't matter. I would have been playing 1-2 if it wasn't for the, me being there that day. <laughs> but um, it was... Basically, Oscar was staying at the office with Chin, and I was like, hey, can I stay here for a little bit? And eventually it was, yeah. Um, answer was, yeah. And I don't know. We all became cool. And I just never left here. I got a job with working for Software Y, doing things, and that's how I ended up here today. <laughs> it's it's wild that um, you and Berkey have the baseball connection, like through your, through your little brother, but that's not... Like, I, I was wondering when, when you mentioned you know, your little brother being a serious baseball player, if that was like how you knew Berkey, but I, that's just a coincidence. Yeah, it's just a coincidence. Um, um, yeah, I know Berkey through Chen. <coughs> um, I ended up becoming close with Burke, Oregon Foreman. Yeah. So, what are you doing now with um, with South for Y? Like, what's your role there? I don't know. Apparently, <laughs> I'm too rich to deal, so. <laughs> 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 so, you know, I think we're um, eventually, um, I don't know. I have no idea. Hopefully, Software Y goes into some type of like, I don't know, starts doing more vlogs and stuff like that. And that will be my role because anywhere I can put my personality is kind of um, 
that's my role in life. <laughs> yeah, we, we must have missed a step in there. How, how did you end up too rich to deal? To what? Oh, 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 well, it, it wasn't didn't happen overnight. Let me tell you that much. <laughs> um, being in Vegas for like three years broke. Um, not trying to, I wasn't really actively trying to get better at poker. I was just going through the motions and like, just trying to show up at a poker table every night as opposed to getting better. And um, this all came from my gambling sense that I had earlier in life. And like, I never, I didn't think of poker as a, I didn't, I thought of poker as, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck I thought about this game. All, all I know is I was not good at it, and I showed up every single night for years. And, like, it wasn't easy for me to show up <laughs> either. So it was like, I don't know. Eventually, I only know how to explain that. But eventually, it's like being around Berkey, Berkey taught me a lot by just leading by example and, like, getting myself together in other aspects of life to get better at poker. Mm-hmm. So I kind of leaned on Berkey for like just role model, just complete role model advice and just like just watching what he does in life. Um, and then came Jesse Sylvia at the beginning of quarantine. So at the beginning of quarantine, Jesse started staking a bunch of people, me and Corey, Gasm, Corey my roommate, Corey Padgett, being one of two of them. And um, he started staking us and coaching us um, using his program, Floptimal, which is awesome, by the way, if anybody wants to get better at learning your opening ranges in um, tournament poker, Floptimal is the shit. Not um, just opening ranges, three betting ranges, calling yeah. ranges. Yeah, Floptimal is absurdly good for studying. It is. It changed my life, kind of. Um, so, yeah, anyway, um, for about a year, I was studying and playing under Jesse. And then that went uh, absolved. Um and I felt great when it did. Like I was stuck on I was stuck in makeup or whatnot, but it didn't feel like I couldn't win. It felt like um I was on the verge of learning. I was on the verge of breaking out, kind of like on the verge of like understanding what's going on out in, in poker. And it, poker's hard. I still don't understand what the fuck I'm doing, kind of, but like I was on the verge of feeling like I understood something. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I just started firing some tournaments and yeah, we, everything started clicking, I guess. <laughs> and we had a lot of deep runs. We, um, what did we do? What did we do? We got third in a, well, yeah, I just had a really good summer. You know, I had a lot of deep runs. I had got 37th in like a 2500 7500 then i played a game i never played before well i played five games that i never played before <laughs> and i got like seventh in that i'm oh, not seventh and ninth in that tournament wait no what was that you see i'm all over the place this was a uh what game was this i don't even know what game it was but i had never <laughs> played it before but and i got ninth in it and <laughs> in the tournament this was a um, like, deuce to seven low ball triple draw you got it. Thank you very much. That's the game. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I got ninth in that tournament. And uh, I was feeling myself at this moment. 
So me and Corey went to LA and we came back and it was like, we fly back and it's like nine o'clock at night and I'm looking at the schedule and I'm like, shit, the 5k registers to like 1145 or something like that. So I get to the house and I'm starting thinking, I'm like, how much money do I have? Go look. I have like 7,500. I was like, that's more than 5k. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My God, I've been broke before. So I, I rest down to the Rio. I'm walking in. And of course, I hop out of the Uber. And who do I see? My good buddy, Matt Berkey. And Berkey's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> he's like, I hope you sold for this. Like, I hope you sold for this. <laughs> <laughs> so we walk in, you know, and um, I ended up getting fourth in this tournament, the 5K for like 130K, um, which was fucking amazing. <laughs> um, I, I completely forgot, but I also had a lot of deep runs like um, online over, over the summer, like before all this happened. Um, like the online WSOP, I got seventh in the hundred or the one million and stuff like that. So I had a, a lot, a really good summer right, bef- right before the series, and then kind of just took off during the series until I punted in the main. Punted so hard, it was so. I still want to cry. I want to go look it up so I can look, read about it and cry again. Who five bets jacks with forty bigs? Who does this shit? So funny shit. I mean, it's <laughs> day five of the main. There's like 150 people, 150, 60 people left. And under the gun opens, we three from middle position, we should just call what a fish I am. Um, and we get forward, of course. Now, as I get forward, all I hear is somebody yelling at the top of their lungs. I've never heard somebody yell so loud in my life. <laughs> like, like I, and I don't want to, like, use this as an excuse of to why I'm five-betting jam, jamming jacks, but I was so, like, I've literally never had somebody yell in my ear so much when I was trying to think. Like, and I'm not somebody that's bothered by anything. But I don't know. I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm all in. And uh, I, was, I was doing an interview 20 seconds later. <laughs> so, yeah, that was kind of my um, how I was too rich to deal. That's is, that story. <laughs> is there anything specific that you would point to? I mean, you kind of said, like, well, things just started to click and, and, you know, you're having success for the first time in, in poker. Like, it's starting to make sense to you. Is there anything in particular that you would you would point to as like an aha moment or, or like a, a a thing that you learned? Um, I mean, it was a lot of things going around on in my life at this time, like as in like trying to get better and like doing things. Like I was going to the gym, I was um, studying every day and stuff like that. But I think it's like just everything... In life going together like not moving so i was i would stop moving so fast i'm fucking being a psychopath stop like started thinking about like how to how do i get better instead of like just showing up to an extent mm-hmm. and like would you go on go ahead no you're good go on uh, i was gonna say would you say that before you you know kind of dedicated yourself to getting better your appeal to poker 
was more on the social side? Um, um, yes and no, because I can get the social aspects of everywhere. But, like, it's like the gambling with a sense. So, like, I never, like, I always look at gambling like, why am I doing this? This is so stupid. But, like, gambling against another human being, that's another story. (laughs) This is a battle of wits at this time or earlier in life. Now it isn't, but it took me a long time to figure that one out. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. So you were more into the psychology aspect of the game than the math. Yeah, but I wasn't good at it. Like I just, it was just draw. <laughs> it was a fucking draw. Like I was better at the math, but I didn't apply it. And the like, I didn't. Yeah, like the psychology part, I just wouldn't, I would just say, fuck it, whatever. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Like, you strike me as the type of person who a good part of your analytical process is just fuck this guy. (laughs) (laughs) So, back in the day, I would say 100% that was my full analytical process. (laughs) We have gotten a little bit better as of today. But, let me tell you something, fuck this guy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that was east coast conrad east coast yep. conrad was fuck this guy conrad west coast are, conrad is um getting better we're gonna try we're gonna try i mean don't get me wrong <laughs> fuck this guy replies a lot <laughs> 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 you know you just can't get out of that situation <laughs> but um yeah it's it's um it's all coming together it's life. Poker's hard. And, like, trying to do this every day and, like, trying to, like, ma- maintain a life out of playing poker, it's fucking absurd. It's absurdly hard. And I still think I'm a psychopath for even trying to do this in my life, knowing how hard it is. But, yeah. It's, like, one of those things, like, you're just not giving up on. Like, I'm here. <laughs> so what is, the, what is the new professional uh, Conrad's life? look like you know kind of like day to day what are you um what, what are you doing to achieve the kind of success in poker that you're that you're looking for um right now i'm fucking off hard <laughs> <laughs> no um i'm not really studying at the moment um kind of just like um waking up coming into our tent outside yeah you heard me right our tent outside yep <laughs> Yep. Where else are you going to smoke marijuana when it's cold out? You need a tent with heaters, obviously, with your computer set up and everything. I'd show you guys a picture, show you guys it, but you know, there's no video here. So no, we, we can we can put a picture up with the, uh, <laughs> with the episode. Don't, <laughs> don't let that stop you. Yeah, you know. So we um, I kind of come into my tent, and right now I'm playing Minecraft every day. <laughs> yes. I'm 34 years old, and I'm saying I play Minecraft every day. <laughs> <laughs> you got any more for me? All right, so basically, last week, um, I had lunch with my friend, and she told me that there was this NFT that um, it's called Genesis Critters, and it was powered by Minecraft, basically. So you play to earn. So basically, I don't know, I'll make it like 2K a day playing Minecraft. <laughs> I spent a lot to get in, but... Right now, I'm playing Minecraft. <laughs> so I, I, I think I need some explaining there. When you say you're making two k a day, yeah, that's like the the value of the tokens that you're that you're yeah, generating. So like I'm generating two k block a day, which is priced at like sixty cents at this moment. But 
it's it's gone as high as a dollar eighty in the past week. So it's um yeah, seems like an interesting gamble to me. So I'm gonna play with this a little bit. I might be going to Florida this week also. Um, WPT stuff. I kind of want to get out there and play everything. Um, just I don't know. I'm excited for poker right now, but that scares me. <laughs> what? Why does that scare you? Because um, that's just gonna find me in every state with every tournament in the next year. Like anytime there's an event, I'll just be there. Like, Can you not get your poker fix in Vegas, of all places? I mean, there's just better and bigger events other places. True. You know, and it's just like, man. How am I not going to this place? And not for nothing. These places are pretty nice, too. It's like Florida. You want to go to the beach? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I'm going to Minnesota, though. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just scary because it's like so much traveling and so much firing. And I don't know how to keep a, a straight head throughout all that, I think, yet. Do you feel like you would, uh, based on your history, uh, so maybe I guess my question is, with you getting better with the analytical side of poker, do you feel that you're also getting better with the uh, bankroll management side of poker or no? Um, Absolutely. Um, I'm a firer, so it's kind of hard for me to say absolutely. But yes, 110% I'm getting old. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't get worse. So how about that? <laughs> <laughs> that, that? That's the fear. That For me, that's the fear for a guy like you. You get the six-figure score um, after putting after putting in like two-thirds of your bankroll uh, in this tournament. And, you know, it's the fear that, you know, are you going to put two-thirds of this, you know, six-figure score into something? Like, I think that's something that uh, it sounds like you that, you know, you're working on that so that that doesn't happen. But when you whoa, say, whoa, 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 let's not go too far. Right. <laughs> let's not go too far. OK. <laughs> I just spent like 30,000 on these critters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, you know, when we say I. The new Conrad is looking for ways to make money when we do weird bankroll management things <laughs> gotcha, not, but just not 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 at a uh a uh, typical bankroll management level where you maybe invest no more than like one percent of your role or something you're still firing pretty hard man i'll never fire one percent i'm a fire like i just i'm going to fire like if i feel like if i feel like i can make money in a spot i'm not there, that's the end of it. Let's all right. Register me and let's do this. Like, I'm not. I'm never gonna be the person that's nitpicking on. I'm only playing five percent of my bank or whatever. Whatever the case might be. I don't even. I don't even know the logistics of what people do there. <laughs> I can't even begin to think. Now, it makes sense why you would need to travel for the bigger events then when that's the case. Because you have the bankroll that can support it, at least, you know, temporarily, unless you continue to, to uh, um, run well. Uh, but, like, you know, with this sort of role, there's probably not too many 5Ks running in Vegas right now. So you kind of have to travel if that's what you're looking for. That yeah, I mean, 
And the funny part about it is, per se, I'm not, I'm not even thinking I'm looking to play 5K. <laughs> Like, if I am, I'm selling half my accent nowadays because I'm just like, I am kind of scared. I don't want to go broke. Again. Okay. I don't want to okay. go broke. Like, I don't. But that's the problem here is I'm not going to stop firing because of that. So it's like, it's a weird, 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 tingly situation in the back of my head. <laughs> I, I wonder if you have the same fear that I have in that. So I don't know how much of, you know, how much of my story you know, but I kind of grind it up the hard way over about a decade <laughs> probably the exact opposite of you in terms of like not firing hard um but the times i did fire hard i had a small bankroll and the uh thought in the back of my mind was if i blow this i can always work and get it back but then once you get like a six figures roll it's not it's not that easy like you can't just blow a six figure roll and grind it back up so th- is that what scares you <laughs> all right so this is gonna be funny um yeah it scares me now because i already blew a six-figure roll this <laughs> in the past six months in the past six months wow. but, when I said, <laughs> but when i said i could get it back i won the sunday warm-up for 43k the other day <laughs> last yeah. sunday so you know um I, this this is a scary scary times in my life <laughs> yeah I, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, what's scary about it is that it, it kind of feels like it's too easy, and that makes you that kind of like works against your um, discipline. Uh, kind of like when you were playing the um, the East Coast games, it's like you know you would you know lose some money, but then you know you can make it back dealing. Now it's like you know you lose even more money, but it seems like you're kind of making it back playing tournaments. So it's almost like like why I have that discipline. Yeah, it's um, it's like I said, this shit is scary. <laughs> my yeah. heart's beating thinking about it. <laughs> honestly, I lived my life on the East Coast, kind of, and just like up to like I don't know, last year, two years ago. That's like there was no amount of money that I I won't be able to make back. Or like it's just it was kind of irrelevant. Like the amount of money, like under five k, it was just always irrelevant. It's just like okay, yeah. what am I going to do with this? What the fuck does this five thousand dollars do for me in the long term? Nothing. So it's like, I'm going to shoot, shoot to shoot, and I'm going to fucking miss every single time. But still, <laughs> I'm going to shoot. That's it's okay. Like, you get it back. You know, that's the thing. Like, and that's the way I, I, I got lucky for getting shit to stick somehow, some way. My, my story is 100% luck. Like, don't get me wrong. I was there for opportunity. But how I fell into everything, I, there's no way I should be. I have a chance in this game. And I'm not sure if I do, but I have a head start to having a chance. <laughs> so so your battle now sounds like how do I maintain this when the luck ends? Because it, it eventually runs out for everybody. Uh, there's ups and downs. So, you know, you're on a high right now. Eventually there will be a down. You just You have another high. You just got to be able to survive that down. Uh, in order to get to that second high. So that sounds to me like that's your challenge now is to like maintain uh, um, the roller coaster ride. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yes. To a certain extent, it's not really maintain <coughs> because like it's fucked up. Because like what I just said, <coughs> when I said like the 5K, like I can always get it back or like um, what am I going to do with 5K? 
I'm starting to get this feeling when it comes to like 20K. And it's like, oh. That's like, what I, I mean. Like, yeah. And it's like, damn. You know? But it's like, it's I, I, I deep down inside know that I'm an idiot. And anytime this thought comes up, <laughs> I am a goddamn idiot. And I'll just sit there and start laughing about it. And it's like, all right. Just got to plan out our moves. And then that's why I honestly bought into this um, Minecraft Genesis critter thing in Majiggy. Because it was just like, give me some type of stability and like something to do outside of poker. Because um, falling into money at right now in life was kind of like, all right, cool. Now, what am I going to do with all my time? Like, I have so much time now. What am I going to do? So it's like trying to just keep myself doing positive things and keep me in front of the computer is a positive thing, no matter which way you look at it. So <laughs> that's why I kind of did, did that. Speaking of that, how's, how's your little brother, Doug? My little brother's great. He's um, a freshman at uh, ECU, Eastern Carolina University. Um, he's a straight-A student, and... He's fucking great. I couldn't be more proud of a child or anybody in my life. Like, yeah, he's if I was to draw him on a piece of paper and like give him all his attributes when he was like born, it's exactly who he is today, which is. That's awesome. Something's got to go wrong sometime, right? (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like he's had plenty go wrong for him already. I mean, I'm sure it was hard on you losing your mom at, at 25 or whatever it was. But I mean, he's 11. Yeah, you know, I don't even think about it like that, you know, because I think about it like, I think about it as just, it's just a part of life, and like, it happens to everyone eventually, you know, so like, I don't, it's weird, because I don't give like a, I don't give him an asterisk because his mom passed away, and he's like, um, had to deal and like, live life, because that's just a part of life in general, like, the kid lived a very chummy life like even with his brother raising him he still had a very 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 um silver spoon life kind of so like if you think about the uh other people like stop thinking about yourself for a second you start thinking about other people and how other people lived it's like you don't get an asterisk because your mom died like these poor kids that have nothing absolutely nothing no family like i don't know i think I think life's hard in a lot of places. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I had that. I had that realization because um, I grew up in Atlanta, and I would always, you know, say, and to this day, I still say, I grew up poor, which is true for American standards. But then I went on a trip to the Dominican Republic, and my cleaning, the cleaning lady, in the uh, place I stayed, I think she made like eleven cents an hour. Yeah, like, now nah, Carlos, you grew up in the mud. Don't get her twisted. <laughs> You grew up in Atlanta. You grew up in the mud. Don't get that twisted. Yeah. <laughs> yes. even, yeah, even worse, it was like uh, south of Atlanta, so it was a little oh. bit more um, rural than the city, but compared to a cleaning lady <laughs> in, the, in the Dominican Republic, man, we're all privileged. Exactly. And that's the sickest part about it. Like, it's you just look outside of where we are, and it's just like, wow, that happens? Like, that's what they're making. That's what they're living on. Like, it's it's just an absurd thing. Like, and I did a lot of, after my mom passed, I did a lot of thinking of, like, kind of like how I'm privileged to a certain extent um, just because I'm living life, you know, like, whatever. 
Um, and I did a lot of just thinking about other people and like other countries and like shit like that. And I always, I always wanted to like help. Um, I don't know how I'll ever do it, but hopefully one day I can figure out a way to do something. I think like what Dan does, Dan Smith does was like double down drive is fucking awesome and stuff like that. I would, I'd want to do like something like hands on, go work with some kids or do something. I don't know. Whenever I think about that, it brings me to that place. <laughs> no, there's no shortage of people in Vegas who I'm sure could uh, benefit from well, various kinds of help. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, so what I really want to start doing in Vegas is like hanging out with kids with cancer. Um, like going to like a chemo whatever whatever the case may be like a chemo clinic or something like that and just hanging out and having fun with them and it's like living life because like i know from watching my mother do chemo for years that shit's hard and like i don't know i want to bring smiles to people's look bring smiles to the kids do something i don't know yeah, I'm remembering what you said about wanting to uh, you know, any anything that leverages your personality or uses your your personality, and that certainly seems like it would fit the bill. Yeah, no, no, I want to start doing something. I'll eventually figure it out. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, uh, I, I have another question. If you don't, um, no, so this this is going back a while. This is something I was always curious about. So, um, a couple of years ago, uh, well, first, let me just ask you, uh, what is your ethnicity? I am Norwegian and black. Norwegian and black. So, your, uh, a couple of years ago, um, you had a screen name on WSLP.com <laughs> called I'm, I'm Not Black, and they made you change it for some reason. Like, what, what was the story behind that? So my screen name, the story behind I Am Not Black is we were sitting in the office one day. It was me, Chin, and Berkey, and we were watching the Rachel Dozer documentary, the lady that um, acted like she was black for the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I've, come, I've come up through a very um, – like I, grew, I, was grown, uh, I was raised by my, my mother, a white lady. Um, so I have very not – I don't know. I don't, I'm not very in touch with my black side. I am, but I'm not. And it was just like a joke saying, I am not black because she is not white. So I somehow came up with that screen name at that moment. So, so you've since changed it. Did they, did they make you change it or did you just did that yourself? No, they made me change it. It was such a great name, honestly, because yeah. I am <laughs> I am fifty percent black, so it's just so great. I used to have so many people. You're, I am not black, but you are black. <laughs> I, I was wondering because I, I, I thought the same thing. I was like, well, maybe he's not black. I, I'll be curious to know because there's a lot of people that I've run into um, over the years who seem black to me who actually aren't black. And so mm-hmm. I'm always curious um, about that, which is the reason I asked. But I was also curious about, um, um, like, what was the story they gave about why they had a problem with their screen name? So it's funny because I think like every year or every six months, whatever, they have like a meeting and they go over the screen names that are, <laughs> are that they, that they've been, um, whatever. Um, so people have emailed them and say, hey, this is 
uh, a bad name or something like that. And eventually, I think they just let my name go for years. And eventually, like, all right, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is hilarious to me, given the um, history of poker screen names. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, all, all of the, like, sexual innuendos that are, like, just completely over the top. Like, I can't even think of all the... Um, the, the worst ones I see. And then when I heard this story about yours, I was like, if he's not black, he's not black. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. He's like, what's wrong with not and being yeah, black? Like, it's kind of funny because it's like, I, there's, there's no, like, there's nothing there that says like any racist or anything exactly. like any, anything. So it's just like people taking offense to this. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. That, that was my take as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, whatever. That's life. I had a friend whose um, screen name was Harry Jew, and he wasn't a <laughs> Jewish man who was Harry, but they made a joke. <laughs> man, these screen names get great. They really do. <laughs> uh, well, I really enjoyed talking to you, Conrad. I'm, um, I don't want to cut it off if, if there was more you guys wanted to uh, to talk about. Um, yeah, I'm sorry I was all over the place, kind of, with my answering. I'm not a very... Um, on cue person. Just I mean, like. I feel like that's that's part of the Conrad experience. I think it would be, it wouldn't be authentic <laughs> if you came in here with like. <laughs> I mean, you do have a good point there, Brokers. <laughs> yeah, my favorite, my favorite part, because I have your hidden mob up. My favorite part is that, like, just jumping around. It, it tells me how much you live by the seat of your pants. That you know, there was a five K score in here. That like your first five K score kind of seems like you just forgot about it. <laughs> which when I had my first 5k score it was life changing like I'll never I remember what I ate for breakfast that day and you just like right over it which was pretty awesome <laughs> I don't know man I'm just shooting for the stars here aiming for the moon shoot for the stars aim for the moon aim for the moon shoot for the stars I don't know whatever Pop Smoke said Uh, anything you want to leave people with? Anything you want to plug? Anything like that? Well, if I want to plug anything, it's Solve for Y. Solve for Y and Floptimal. The combination of the two change your life. You know? Solve for Y for all, like, just your the structure of your idea thoughts. And then Floptimal gives you the technique that you need. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> also check out your favorite dealer on um well x dealer on poker out loud <laughs> awesome well thanks so much conrad and uh good luck with everything keep us posted all right well thank you for having me um enjoy the conversation people we're all over the place but you know it was fun <laughs> carlos nice. it was a pleasure meeting me you you too man you too man all right have a good one guys take care you too
Time.